I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Pen Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Ariel Reznikov, poet, teacher, adept, poetry community collaborator, whose most recent works include a pamphlet, 10-4, Poems, Translations, Variations, written with Jerome Rothenberg, and a chapbook called Between Shades, who curates a reading series here at the Writer's House called Multilingual Poetics, very relevant to our conversation today, and whose new poems and translations can be found in many places, including Jacket 2, White Wall Review, Mantis, and elsewhere. And by Stephen Ross, who joins us today after having traveled from Montreal, where he is assistant professor of English at Concordia University, whose new project is a book-length study of modern and contemporary poetry and the problem of having to be someone or something, who is co-founder of the web journal Wave Composition and whose book, Invisible Terrain, John Ashbery and the Aesthetics of Nature will soon be published by Oxford University Press. And by my dear friend Rachel Blau Duplessis, an eminence familiar to all readers of contemporary poetry, and also to those who have listened to Poem Talk episodes going way back who is about to publish Days and Works, whose chapbook Poesis recently emerged from Textile Editions, whose Euridics, Sonnets and Extensions, Euridics, E-U-R-Y-D-I-C-S, will be published in 2018 with a poem from the same work available in a recent issue of Poetry Magazine, and whose numbers, a book of collages and poems, will appear from Materialist Press in 2018. Stephen, thank you for coming all the way from Montreal. Thank you for having me, Al. Was it a hassle? It wasn't as much of a hassle as, as it could have been. You know, you're never being admitted back into Canada. You're, they're going to retain you. or does, I think it works the other way around. They want to get you, get rid of you. I think they won't let me come back here once I go back there. Okay, maybe yeah. that's it. Um, and Ariel, nice... Always to have you here at 3805 Locust. A pleasure to be here. You're a regular. You're a true regular. And Rachel, so fabulous to see you at readings, special events, and here in the studio for another poem talk. What fun, Al. Oh, it's been great. We've done, let's see, we did Kathy Wagner's This Is a Fucking Poem. I mean, there are many, right? Um, and then the, one of the very first ones, maybe the third or fourth, on Oppen's Ballad. That's right. That and I think really Ray Armentrout, I remember Olson. We did a great one on Olson. Anybody who's listening to this, go to the Olson Poem Talk. It is just such a nice primer for Olson, I think, even though it's an unusual piece, the one that we did. Yeah, and we had oh, everybody there was really on and great. And we did yeah. one on Lisa Robertson, as I remember. We did. So you've done a bunch. Um, and then one of my favorite. All-time Poem Talk episodes, you're not on it, but we talked about Draft 85 hard copy, which is a response to George Oppen. Great. So yeah, I'm very you grateful. rock, you dominate. Um, well, look, the four of us are here today to talk about five sections or pages or passages, we'll talk about what they are, from a book called Uxudo, U-X-U-D-O by Antardos. 
Only one of the five has a title. The first of our selections called She Put It Mildly. So for anyone listening to the discussion and having the Tumba Press O-Books edition of the book to follow along, let me just say that the five sections in the order in which we'll hear Tardos perform them can be found on pages 55, 19, 31, 43, and 53. On Pen Sounds and Tardos author page, which I highly recommend, one can find all five of these sections and many more in the recording made of her performance at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. So here now is Anne Tardos reading from Oxudo. She put it mildly. Tired out, tired out by long winter nights, she took the daylight with its first sip of tea tasting like nectar as a gift. Ragaskodo madness, ragaskodo, attached, attaching. She put it so mildly she couldn't be heard by those who were used to the din. She explored processes and suffered, vomit and badgerings, cruelty bleedings of murderous banister fracas. Gänsehäufel bathing beauty. And Gänsehäufel is a, is a uh, beach near Vienna. And, of course, Merdivorous is dung-eating. All sins of all cats rolled into one. Escalier, Strudelhof, Bricolage. Where do we come from and where do we go? Image, mon ami, ich smoke nicht mehr. Gern would I do. Sapristi. Vasquelam. Malheureux, vasquelam. Panic in the Straßen. Can be civilag, watery armory hip hop cafes. Confidentially timed refreshment options. Krakow. Interrupt me donc, simplicity, le chien, mehrmalig marvelous, eigentum tie das Anglia, eigentumlich, tout à fait eigentumlich. Hochgeduld, after nine from a fountain, gekreuzung, viel mehr, which is how it's done. Neighborly, jolie bed, give it time, harum barosh. After image. Brick a brac, bit of fair, arcane bonkers, intriguing transitions and deepening sounds, junk dealers, abnormal squanderings, Congo, unerträglich vielfach, living in truth. Glupf. Anne sees bluer and brighter than the other. Together they blend the perfect hue. Living with monkey ghosts, poverty variants, cucumber mosaics, eelgrass, and cuckoo. Lorraine Hagabi Hiaba, Wande wunderbare Ewigkeitstätigkeit, Ranzostanz, Objet sécurisé de Griffonade, Daedalus pagination, rictus kivan. Ivan was terrible. Who am I, really? Räuberträume, solitude, uxudo. Seip Anyog didn't run summer drum. Hearsay, tactar, serenity, Zelda. What you see is a kurtuskelni shelter, blampino defunction, form of happiness, erzeik and kadesh. This is how the brain works, e patati, e patata. That petite animal down there at your feet. 
Ariel, four languages, Hungarian, French, German, English. Why in the world would a poet write in all four of those languages on pretty safe assumption that most readers are not going to get the Hungarian and a few will have a little German and French, English readers. Why? What's the point? Actually, Stephen and I were talking about this last night and I mentioned something that Anne had said to me last time I saw her, which was that... uh, Poetry is all about manners, she said, you know. It's like you do anything else. You write poems, and Anne lives her life in those four languages, and uh, so she makes her poems in those languages. It's very, she's very matter-of-fact about it, actually. Stephen, what, what do you say to someone who says, well, that's very cool, you, you academics, you poets, you know, that's a very theoretically sophisticated thing to say about citizens of the world and about living. But... What about the reader? How can the reader possibly get something from this? Well, that's another question, is is who or what this is being written for. So I wonder um, if it makes sense to posit some reader for these poems as if that was what they were, who they were made for, or if they were sort of propelled in that direction to start with. Rachel, you and I often have um, conversations about literary history and political history. So... She's born in German... She was a child in German-occupied Paris, moves with her parents to Budapest, learned Hungarian, Hungarian Revolution, which is 1956. They moved to Vienna, which is a different German, then a French high school in Vienna, then she goes to the United States. Right, right. Anne Tardos, in this book, to me, is writing a cosmopolitan poem. Obviously, it's obscure. It's also very genial. When you hear her read it, it's as if you really do understand. But you, of course, you don't understand except for the, the English and maybe a little teeny bit of the other. Let's just say you're overhearing multiple conversations in a cosmopolitan cafe in middle Europa or in some large European city. It's very non-threatening in part because there are for the listeners – um, stills as if from a video or a small movie of people who look like friends and other people who look like Anne Tardos as a child. So for me, it has to do with, yes, her background, absolutely. And by the way, her parents apparently fought in the French resistance. But it also has to do with the social meaning of the cosmopolitan. If one could imagine a subtextual, she's not a didactic poet, the opposite actually, but there's a subtextual didacticism here. She's saying something to us urgently. What would that be? What is she saying urgently to us about our relationship with language? I think it's twofold. I think on one end, we have something actually uh, in the urgency of the untranslatability of something like in Claude Lanzmann's film Shoah, where we have all of these languages taking place and very bad translations and very bad subtitles. One almost thinks deliberately bad. Yeah. There's a sense of perhaps the chaos which uh, takes place between languages. And yet the uh, when I said twofold, what I... Anne, um, is very explicit about the fact that she thinks of herself uh, first as a composer of music and then as a poet in sort of uh, under that umbrella. And so it's about perhaps turning that chaos into uh, some type of musical measure. So multi, uh, multilingual poetics is a, implicitly a poetics of community, community and, and conversation. Yeah, and of tolerance. So, Stephen, let's follow it up by looking at one of the poems. Um, Lorraine Huggaby Hiaba, which is page 43, 
So on the facing page, as Rachel suggested, we have the, the, the verso, um, and we have, it's kind of a glossary, but it really isn't. Um, we have one classic glossary thing, which is Eivigkeit Stettigkeit, uh, which is, sorry for the Viennese German there, but it, it means occupation slash eternity, so it's one of those slippy words. Hmm. Then we have Griffinod, which she basically spins off on us. Maybe you'll comment on that, but my favorite is the title of the book at the bottom. Hmm. And what we get there is a kind of etymological irreducibility. And it, of course, since it's a titular word, we have to focus on it. Do you want to say anything about how the glossary works? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to say. Um, one thing I like about the glossary is um, once in a while she'll have these words, these these words she's coined. Um, Griffonad is an example here. At least it starts out that way, where the word equals the word equals the word. Um, first thing is that this, it kind of reminds me of Stein also, I should say. The way that Stein turns English almost into a foreign language for native listeners. There's some, there's some continuity here. Um, a rose is a rose is a rose. Griffonade, Griffonade. Um, but what's interesting also about Griffonade here is that the word starts to merge into meaning. So that actually, unlike other words like falitude or uxudo later on, which do not, which don't stop being opaque or stop meaning anything more than just themselves. You can't get any... They're, they're at the base. They're ba basic language block that are, isn't, can't be translated. Right. And Griffonade then becomes scribbling, just gekritzel, which I don't know what that means. And then Griffin, a, a kind of dog or mythological beast. So that word um, that seems to have to be utterly opaque or a coinage starts to have a meaning from places where she's not necessarily planning it that way. Ariel, what's the difference between a rose is a rose is a rose on one hand and uxudo equals uxudo equals uxudo? There's something, there's a difference between those two. Well, I think that Anne is interested in this very precarious line between the semantic and the asemic. And I think that what happens in the repetition or the stuttering over this nonsensical word is that she she plays on that precarious border so that we begin to perhaps hear tuxedo or we begin to perhaps hear uh, menudo or, you know, there are these various ways in which we uh, plant meaning into the words, even if actually what she's trying to do is provide us with words which are purely sound. Rachel. Well, yeah. 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 Uxudo. Apparently, according to one of the, her statements, is a word that was thrown up by her computer, which, I, since I've had that experience with my printer, who, who gave me, I mean, which <laughs> gave me a full <laughs> sentence, I, I appreciate that. So, the, it being a completely nonce word, even a robotic word, is amusing, and it, it it makes me want to say one of the things that's happening here, it's not just code switching. It's not just translation. This book is almost at least half, if not more, neologisms. You'll find, you know, Roy Bertroima, robber dreams, robber dreams, and then rêve voleur, which has, if you know the language, is a little, just has a little teeny bit of a different feeling, L little teeny language nuances. So not only is she doing a kind of heteroglossic thing and a kind of pan-European thing, but she is scat singing across European languages, which raises for me the fabulous issue of the influence of African-American 
practices in jazz back into, read back into a pan-European sensibility. Yeah, I mean, um, I happen to have been reading Nathaniel Mackey in preparation for this, and, and Mackey's, one of his two or three main interests is, the, is to derive from theorists, uh, lots of different kinds of theorists, this notion that all language is exilic, and all language is not, um, there's no home in language, there's only, you know, mixing languages and demonstrating the longing to go somewhere, but when you get there, it's, you know, made by the language that you yeah, invented and as you Legba, went along. which is the, the, his and key. And Legba is Le, the Legba phantom is limb limping. The phantom limb and the limping figure at the border, right. at, always at the border. Which is why when um, Antares was here, and it was Ariel's series here at the Writer's House called... Multilingual Poetics. Multilingual Poetics. And when she was here, I think three of the four of us were in the room. Um, I asked her an inappropriate question got, and got a kind of eye-roll answer, which I respected completely, by the way. I wanted to read into the Hungarian in particular, but also to the German, something of a post-traumatic, exophonic, neological impulse not to pin down sort of a version of what you said, but I pushed it, and I referred to occupation eternity, because mm. occupation is very strong in that word. It's also a word, as Rachel said, that's two kite words jammed together, occupation eternity, so it's really a hyphenation. And Anne politely resisted a psychological reading, which I respected, because I was trying to personalize this, you know, I mean, German-occupied... Paris and then Budapest and the tanks roll in, she would have every right to um, fuck with the languages to make sure she didn't feel at home anywhere so she could you know, pack her bags and leave. But she wasn't buying that. So, Stephen, I turn to you. I mean, aside from the kind of emotional weight that this has, um, it makes larger claims, if I can put it that way, mm. that are not about one person's experience. As I got deeper into my reading of this book, because um, it is, it is, I wouldn't say it's rebarbative the first time you read it, but it certainly doesn't um, pull you through it the way that it's not narrative, of course. Um, one thing I was thinking about is the experience of being in, I mean, I, I've just moved to, to Quebec, to Montreal. I never studied French formally, so I find myself translating sentences into kind of franglais or some, some kind of mix, you know, ich smoke nicht mehr, kind of doing that with French. Of course, Quebecois French A lot of is, Yiddish speakers in there. And of course, I live Quebec. amongst the Hasidim in Outremont, you know, I'm in a sort of neighborhood that's half Hasidic, half bourgeois French, and then and me and my, my wife Jane, um, who herself is, is trilingual. So we kind of joke around the house in multiple languages, speaking nonsense to each other, um, and I, I, I sort of have recognition with the book in that sense, that there's play, the way that you learn a language or are kind of on the cusp of a language, but not really owning it or having fluency. I, I think what I'd like to do is listen together to She Put It Mildly Again, and then invite um, Ariel and, uh, and Rachel to comment first on anything in that poem. Uh, so let's listen to it. She put it mildly. Tired out, tired out by long winter nights, she took the daylight with its first sip of tea tasting like nectar as a gift. Ragascodo madness, ragascodo, attached, attaching. 
She put it so mildly she couldn't be heard by those who were used to the din. She explored processes and suffered. Vomit and badgerings, cruelty bleedings of murderous banister fracas. Gänsehäufel bathing beauty. And Gänsehäufel is a, is a uh, beach near Vienna. And of course, murderous is dung eating. Well, I picked kind of the easiest one to do a close reading of because there's a lot of English. But Ariel, start us off. Let's do let's do a little close reading of this one. Well, we might start actually just in, and we've already mentioned this, but I think in this recording in particular, to start in the sound of her voice and the cadence. I mean, this is the one where I feel as though we have we're listening to a reincarnation of Stein. I mean, that of course it's Tardos in uh, every way, and yet I hear this sort of attention to each word um, and uh, also this sort of um, hovering above the language so that it's not that as though uh, we're inside the language, it's as though almost that we're uh, moving over it or uh, between it. Rachel, you want to add to that? Yeah, well, I actually, you know, I'm, I'm, my mind is on a different path here as, as you were seeing before, especially right today when um when our 45th president is going to issue or has perhaps at this point already issued some incredible proclamation about immigration. This is a book of deliberate mongrelization, as that term was used, and I use it in a very neutral sense as the descriptive term that was used. That is, mongrelization, anti-mixing of any kind, was a big concern of the 20th century and now with the replay in the 21st. Um, and that they were that it was all about... Uh, new immigrants who at that point were, instead of being Nordics, like nobody in this room, as it were, uh, let's just say it that way. I think we can guarantee that. We can guarantee that. That's what they were called. Were resisting the Nordic population, including, say, the president of Bryn Mawr at that point and so on, very famous woman, was, was against, you know, Jews, Italians, Slavs, Russians, not to speak of the already existing strictures against Asian populations and the incredible um, Jim Crow in this country against black populations who almost didn't figure in this screed because they were so far out of the discourse. So I think that this is a book in which Tardos wants to resist a biographical reading, which is kind of what you were giving it, mm -hmm. and that's why it was in quote, out-of-line question, by remembering what what her subject position is or resisting a, a biographical reading of what is a generalized subject position of um, the mongrel person, the multilingual person, and so on. And that could be, I mean, it is in many ways a very social book because the dropping of segregation between languages and between peoples is actually kind of what you get in this book as a thing, as a sort of item so mongrelization becomes a, a weapon against the fascism and racism that are associated with the, the linguistic nativism that was um, an expression of the right wing in the United States and then in the various nationalisms of Europe. Um, so I think, to, and I want to turn to you, Stephen, I think she put it mildly, is a kind of semi, it comes at page 55, so this is kind of a goofy thing to say, but it's a kind of prefatory, um, an ars poetica-ish statement where she's saying, 
to put it mildly does not mean, hey, I am an international woman whose English is mixed, and so I'm being shy in the sense of putting things mildly. No, to put it mildly, meaning to say the very least, mm. right? She, could, she couldn't be heard by the din, and the din is the noise caused by the super-articulate monolingual, you know, inheritors of nativism. So I really like, Stephen, this, she explored processes and suffered. Mm. This suffering produces the mongrelization that Rachel was talking about. You want to take that point to the next step? Yeah. Um, one thing I would add um, to what you were saying is thinking about this this kind of poetics of resistance by, by recuperating mongrelism, um, that status, as this uncanny double of, of Poundian poetics where, you know, he's he's positing all these terms in seven languages and giving you a kind of gloss in English of how you pronounce the word, and yet where that is a kind of in the service of possibly a totalitarian project in an aesthetic and political sense, um, it's precisely the opposite here, whereby she's not trying to swallow the whole world and then tell you what it is, or digest it, you know, in, in her way, um, but, but is giving you something that is not assimilable or um, digestible um, this particular poem, maybe the most coherent, I guess, narrative of all the ones, seems to be a scene at the Gänsehäufel, which I've never been to, but a beach near Vienna. Um, and but it means geese piles. Geese pile, yeah. So it's sort of like geese shit yeah. on that beach and bathing beauties. This, to me, is the Ars Poetica part. The, the last of the five poems starts with um, Tsep Anyag, which is Hungarian, uh, meaning uh, beautiful material. Mm. And on the side, on the side, this is how the brain works, right? So there's potato, there's a slang word for vagina, there's a reference to a pair of TV clowns in Brazil, all in that patati, patata, and this is how the brain works. It works on beautiful material that is smeared with geese dung. This is a claim for a new kind of linguistic beauty, I think. I think that uh, what we find here is actually something which I discovered in Rachel's book, which she's got here, Genders, Races, and Religious Cultures, cultures, and cultures in Modern American yeah. Poetry, 1908 to 1934. Uh, highly recommended, although that's not my gathering paradise, but amazing. Well, you and slipped it, one in there. <laughs> but, um, Thank you, Ariel. We have this sort of showdown, it seems to me, um, in the Lower East Side, in the Bowery, actually, um, in the early 20th century. Henry James goes there in 1904, uh, the same year Zukowski reminds us that he Zukowski is born in that very same neighborhood. Uh, and he goes and he describes what he sees basically as shit. And he's describing immigrants. Um, and in you know, that very same sort of moment, uh, literary and historic moment, uh, Mina Loy goes to the same neighborhood, you know, and what she says is this is the future of American poetry. And this is actually what's much more interesting than anything we've had before. And I think what we find in, in Antardos is actually um, a claim um, and really um, uh, an activation or initiative towards that poetics of this um, celebration of the mongrel and uh, celebration of everything that's been coded trash and worthless, but, you know, put to music. So what's so cool about this historical moment when Antardos, who's not teens, 20s, 30s, in that kind of rise, the rise of fascism moment and the death of, you know, the just almost pure destruction of modernism, that moment that Jerry Rothenberg 
and others go back to constantly. But she goes through all of this Cold War stuff, first fascism, then Soviet communism, and comes to the United States, to New York in the mid-60s and encounters um, quasi-non-intentional chance operations, um, happenings. Fluxus poetics. Fluxus poetics. Um, forms a partnership with Jackson McClough, and that is really important, world-shaking, or at least poetry-shaking moment, bringing all that anti-fascism and multilingualism and anti- and mongrelism that's anti-mongrelism to this one moment. And this is the result, which is just so historically important. Um, Rachel, what I want to do is start with you, and then I want to go back around and let everybody else, everybody say one last thing one thought that you came here to say and didn't have a chance. And haven't said yet. I, I begin to think that many of the more interesting works in our century are really Gesamtkunstwerks of one sort or another. And that means in German, a total artwork. The, it's been used for opera, like for Wagner and things like that. And it would be music and art and performance and you know, stuff, everything that you could stick into something. In many ways, films provide that for us. Um, but something like Anne Tardos's work is like a mini Gesamtkunstwerk because it does have the pictures. It does have a sort of mural. It certainly has languages and the music of these languages, as Ariel was saying. And I truly think that uh, that, that kind of work is a result of of the cosmopolitan um, prolificness and the vitality of American poetics as you've just construed it. Wow, beautifully summarized. Thank you so much. Stephen, a f last thought or a last idea or something in the text you wanted to add? Sure. I, I have been interested lately in poetic projects or po poets or poems that um, are enacting some kind of refusal of the need to self-describe. Um, the compulsory self-description, the fact that we have to be a subject, um, the corollary of which is if you, you know, don't do that right, you will become an object, you'll be objectified. So how is, is there a way that you can avoid being the wrong kind of subject and the wrong kind of object? Um, this book, you know, has kind of blown my mind in that regard because, you know, you've got um, a very, it seems like almost mundane situation that, you know, the poem takes you through it. I mean, of course, it's not mundane. It's her mother's funeral, I think, is the occasion for, for the video that's included. Um, but it's sort of just like quotidian quadrilingual detritus that goes through the head, the static electricity of, you know, thinking in four languages, feeling in four languages. Um, I, it's got me really thinking about this problem of self-description. I think she's, 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 she's managed it so, so interestingly. Thank you so much. Ariel, final thought? Um, I'll just say that um, on the day that uh, our 45th president was elected, uh, on the day after, uh, many people that I know who work in, in literary studies and are scholars and critics felt as though, you know, what do we do in the face of all this and can we continue to work on Victorian literature or on, you know, uh, medieval history or et cetera, et cetera. And uh, for myself, and I write on Antardos, um, uh, one of the things that uh, I felt was actually suddenly this becomes even more urgent than before. Uh, the types of uh, the types of things that Anne is doing in her work, the types of um, the code switching and the tag switching, but also the ultimately translingual modality that she operates inside of uh, or through um, 
demands from us a, a particular, as I said at the beginning, manners, or I like to actually, I might call this an ethics, um, of being willing to uh, confront so many of these differences that exist in this book that are very uh, difficult differences, but not to cast them off, um, rather to try to acknowledge them and try to work through them and try to not assimilate them, but um, somehow... Um, acknowledge, incorporate, yeah, resaturate yourself with them. Somehow... Um, yeah, resaturate yourself with them. That's a really beautiful way to say it, Rachel. Because then it dissolves boundaries, self-boundaries, as um, Stephen was saying. Mm. Well, my, my final thought follows um, politically, emotionally from Rachel's, which is, you know, I, couldn't, I, I read this in a 45th president frame of mind, uh, this book, as a kind of putting it mildly counter-response. Um, and... And, and as I mentioned earlier, it happened to coincide with my reading Nathaniel Mackey about language. So I, I, for my final thought, I want to just offer Nathaniel Mackey's thought. Um, in a, in, a, in an essay he wrote in the ni- in the nineties, he um, it was called On Edge, and he's responding to Edmund Jabez, whom he likes generally, but he differs with Jabez's view that there's something particularly tragic about Amy Césaire and Leopold Senghor's writing in French rather than presumably an African language, a language of their own. If language is the subversive, unsettling force, Mackey writes, the engine of displacement that Jabez tells us it is, then none of us are at home in it, and certainly no one owns it. If language is catastrophic rather than grounded, then Césaire and Senghor are no more uprooted in French than they would be in Wolof. If, as Maurice Blanchot says, to stay within language is always already to be outside. Then Césaire and Senghor are no more exiled in French than Jabez or Blanchot. I once heard David Anton, the late David Anton, remark that there's no such thing as a native language, no such thing as a native speaker. What I took him to mean by this, says Mackey, is that language undoes any ostensible ground and that we have to part with notions of a sedentary relationship to it, that we have to part with attitudes of native simplicity, native complacency, native gullibility, and so forth. One isn't born speaking one's so-called native language, but has to be taught. To remember this is to keep the weirdness of language in mind. From which book? Because you just quoted the title of the essay. Is that discrepant engagement? So it's from discrepant engagement. It's called On Edge. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, a chance for several of us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Who wants to start? Rachel, you look like you're ready to recommend. I've been reading because of many interests, including in poetry by women, Diane de Prima's, one of Diane de Prima's memoirs, the big thick one that was published in 2001, called Recollections of My Life as a Woman, The New York Years. And it's really amazing in, in many, many ways. It's almost mythic in its absorptive qualities. It certainly sets certain records straight. It's very engaging, and it really talks about 
the bravery of her various struggles and her, her complete insouciance, some of which leaves one gasping. That's cool. What a great recommendation. Ariel Reznikoff, can you top that? I want to recommend uh, Arrive on Wave, The Collected Poems of Gil Ott, published by Chax Press, edited by Eli Goldblatt, Trace Peterson, and Gregory Laner. And it's absolutely just wonderful and a treasure. Terrific. Thank you. Stephen Ross. Well, um, my suggestion isn't contemporary, actually, but it's it's relevant now. You mentioned Aimé Césaire, um, and I just taught Césaire's notebook of Return to the Native Land, um, You've taught that too, Rachel. I think it's one of the great books of the 20th century. Yeah, very simply. And I was teaching it to francophone students largely, so that so we could we could work in both languages. They could help me with the French. Um, and I read his discourse on colonialism to prepare for that teaching, and um, uh, was stopped. It stopped me in my tracks. I mean, it was written early 50s, um, and is an incredibly important book to read this minute. Because um, it's a, I mean, it's a critique of colonialism, obviously, but it's specifically um, diagnosing this problem, how fascism happens in a country, whereby um, fascism is basically a country doing to itself what it has done to other countries abroad. It's not a long discourse, but it's uh, it could have been written tomorrow. I mean, you know, it's that relevant. So I would say that. Thank Maybe you. gathering hell rather than paradise. But. Yeah, that's okay. We, <laughs> we, we do that once in a while. Um, my gathering paradise. Well, a few days ago, I got an email from Ann Waldman saying, do you, can you play a CD? She asks me. I said, I think so. I think I have a way of playing a CD. So today in the mail arrives untethered Ann Waldman, I believe might only be available on CD. And when I unwrap the wrapper, and I'm on my way home somewhat after this conversation, a little while after this conversation, I'm going to put it in. And I'm going to listen to Dirge South, 18 minutes, and Entanglement, 38 minutes, with Roger Green on guitar, Mark Dalio on drums, Farrell Lowe on guitar, saxophone, percussion, and whispers, Paul Riola on saxophone, Dave Willey on accordion, piano, saxophone, and percussion, and Ad Waldman on text and vocals. Well, that's all the murdiverousness we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks so much to my guests. Stephen Ross came all the way from Montreal. Thank you. Thank you. And you recorded something today. What was it? Oh, uh, I recorded some of my poems, and uh, Ari and I recorded the first procession um, of this nine-part poem processions that we're translating from the Yiddish of Michal Licht. Um, so we did a, a, a bilingual recording of that for the first time. And so those recordings will be available probably on your on Ariel's uh, page, Pensound page, and yours as well. Great. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've been interpolated by Pensound. You've been interpolated. I can't. That sounds really bad. Um, so thanks, Stephen and Ariel Reznikoff and Rachel Vlad Duplessis, as always. And to Poem Talk's director and engineer, Zach Cardner. And I, somebody else is there, Zach, but I can't. It's Annie. Hello, Annie. Thank you so much. Uh, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same amazing Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, visiting the writer's house from various corners of Canada will be Colin Brown, Fred Waugh, and Daphne Marlett. And they and I will be talking about a long poem by Larissa Lai called Nascent Fashion. This is Al Filris, and I hope you'll join us for that or another episode of 
Home Talk. This is Al Filry's Poem Talks producer and host. Zach and I and the rest of the Poem Talk team here at the Kelly Writers House hope you enjoyed this new episode. We wanted to add a special word of thanks here at the end to Nathan and Elizabeth Light, whose generous grant supporting Poem Talk, among other outreach projects, has helped make this episode possible. Thank you so much to the Lights, and thanks to our regular and intermittent listeners, one and all. We'll see you again in a month with another new episode of Poem Talk.